This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Hey, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Moms, on behalf of all the men and teenagers in the room, we want you to know that though we are never able to adequately express it, we are deeply, deeply thankful for you and all that you do. We're thankful for all the things you've done for us that we see and notice and the many more things you see and do for us that have gone unnoticed. Uh, And so because we're not able to express that adequately, many of us have bought Hallmark cards. And uh, so we need you to know we did not run through an aisle yesterday and grab the first one we came to, but we stood in the aisle and prayed and asked the Lord to direct us to the one that was most meaningful for you specifically. So when you open it, because we're incapable of expressing ourselves, uh, we have let someone else do it for us. On behalf of all of our teenagers, I will apologize to you for our brattiness, our, our wanting everything, our not appreciating you. Um, and I know that's not all of our teenagers, but it could be a few. And they deeply appreciate you. In about 15 years, they're going to circle back and tell you how awesome you were. So um, it's, it's really, really a good time for you. Uh, Angie and I were able to hang out with my mom yesterday down in Dallas or we watching one of our, our kids play basketball. And uh, just know, I mean, I'm 40 now and my mom now enjoys being around me. So um, moms of annoying sons, there's, there's a hope for you, but still she has lower limits. So, uh, but, but there's, there's that. So, hey, it is Mother's Day. We are thankful for you. We've got all kinds of things to celebrate you. Um, and yet, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Jesus now. So uh, we, we love you, but we don't worship you. Uh, so, so we're here to, to talk about him. We're in the middle of a series that we've called Witness, Tell Your Story. And we're exploring stories in the, the New Testament where people become followers of Jesus and seeing how he changes their stories to become kind of a, a platform to tell his story to the world around them. Today we're going to talk about how Jesus loves and calls passionate people to follow him. If you're a passionate person, Jesus isn't scared of that. He's not uh, wanting to take that away from you. He's just wanting to redeem it and use it for his glory. Now, Mother's Day is probably a great, time, a great time to talk about passionate people because there's no more passionate group of people in the world than mothers. Right? You are passionate about your children. You heard the description from one of our, our chapel youth of uh, what kind of animal is your mom. She's a mama bear, right? which was probably a universal description. I remember watching my mom go to bat for my siblings uh, a lot growing up. Not so much for me. I think most of the time when teachers complained, she was like, yeah, it is his fault. Um, but with my siblings, she would go to bat for them. And, and I saw the, the mama bear side. We've seen that some of you. Mom, we could, we could talk on Mother's Day about how, uh, you know, mothers, they give up their passions for the greater passion of raising and loving their children. Right? Any, any moms in the room that would say, I've given up stuff for my kids? Right, things I love, enjoy, nice things, uh, fun things, enjoy things that I used to spend money on myself for, uh, those types of things. Yeah, so, so we always try to, you know, we want to go to bat. Dads, uh, you can help your wives here. Uh, go to bat for her on occasion and let your kids know she was a lot of fun before you were born, right? <laughs> Like we did cool stuff. She didn't freak out about when homework is due. She didn't care about if a room was clean. Like we traveled and we did fun stuff and then you came along, right? And so anything that you don't like in your mom, it's your fault. Uh, and one day you're going to leave and I'm going to get my wife back and life's going to be awesome, right? And, and so we just, we understand moms, you have given up a lot to raise the kids that you love. And we see that and we appreciate it. And yet on Mother's Day, as passionate as moms are, I think there's one other group of people who probably display passion just a, a little more for us, and that would be toddlers. 
Right? If, if you've hung out with toddlers, if you've raised toddlers, you know there is nobody that is more all in or all out all of the time than a three or four year old. Like they just, you never have to wonder what a toddler thinks, wants, or needs. They will tell you. You never have to wonder if they like something or don't like something. They'll tell you and anyone else who will listen. Right? And, and so when you're raising toddlers, this is a source of concern because you're, you're constantly trying to figure out, like, is this just normal toddler behavior or do I have, like, a terrorist in training? And you're, you're trying to navigate that, that balance. And, and, but when you don't have toddlers it's really just pretty enjoyable, right? Like there's nothing I love more than watching toddlers tell their parents everything they like or don't like in the world. In fact, one of my, my favorite things to, to see on uh, social media is anytime there's a collection of parents posting pictures of why their kids are crying. So it's like a, a picture of the kid, toddler kind of mid fit, and then just a real short description of what led to that moment. And so for Mother's Day, we've gathered a few of these for you. The first one, a family took their daughter to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. I don't know if you can see her down here at the bottom. This was her response because the Golden Gate Bridge wasn't golden. I mean, how, how dare they? And so uh, obviously you lay down in the parking lot, right? And, and that's just what you do. Um, this next one, maybe you had this experience. He wants to get on the bus, the bus that's on TV. And doesn't understand why his parents hate him so much that they won't put him on the bus. And, and so again, it's just an immediate uh, outburst of tears. The next one, um, they wouldn't let him eat a battery for breakfast, <laughs> clearly. Uh, I think maybe some of us did eat batteries for breakfast, and it explains what, what our problems are today. Um, this next one, occasionally kids will get mad at you for not doing the thing that you didn't know they wanted. So he suddenly wanted his cycling backpack at the park, which doesn't exist. Right? So this kid, his mom takes him to the park, he wants his cycling backpack, and she's trying to tell him, uh, you don't have a backpack, you've never talked about a cycling backpack, I have no idea what you mean, but if you've raised toddlers, you know there's this moment where they say they want something, and the first time they want it, it's like their lifelong dream. And if you can't meet it, you have crushed everything in their soul. And that's what this little guy's feeling here. And then the last is my favorite, uh, we wouldn't let him swim in the sea, he can't swim, and it's six degrees. <laughs> But, but my favorite thing is this little guy's response here. He's not even throwing a fit. That's the toddler move where they just pretend to be dead. Like, I can't hear you. You've ruined everything in my life. I don't understand what is wrong with you. If, if you've raised toddlers, if you've been around toddlers, you know what passionate people are like. And, and what we want to see this morning is that Jesus doesn't come to try to remove our passion, but he redeems it. Right? Passion is a gift from God. He's the one who created us to love deeply. He's the one who created us to feel strongly. God created us to have deep-seated convictions that drive the direction of our life. He designed us to identify with a belief system and to build our whole life around it. He, desired, he designed us to desire things, to chase after them, to work towards them. God put this passion in our life. And then sin comes and sin corrupts that passion. And so sin begins to take our passion and attach it to things that are destructive, attach it to things that are selfish. And, and sometimes our passions can run wild in all of these different directions. And at times in the church, the response to passions that have gone the wrong direction is to try to create passionless people. And sometimes we have this idea of that the ideal Christian is somebody who is completely detached from their emotions. 
somebody who is not ruled by their passion, somebody who really doesn't even feel passionate about anything anymore. Now, if if you grew up in kind of Pentecostal or charismatic churches, you have no idea what I'm talking about because there was passion everywhere. Like people yelled, people jumped, people threw things. You you don't have any of that. But, But others of us, maybe you grew up in a church where it was like, hey, check your emotions at the door. Like, there's no room for, this is, this is a place of the Lord. He is serious, he is holy, and he doesn't have time for your nonsense, right? And so you, you were kind of taught this idea that, that God is above and beyond, that he's removed from our passions. And, and yet we see in the Gospels, not only are we made to be passionate people, but Jesus was a passionate person. Jesus wept. Jesus cried out. Jesus flipped over tables. Jesus did, I mean, he was a passionate person, but his passions never led him in a destructive direction because they were surrendered to the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And and that's where God is trying to get us to. He wants to redeem our passions. So so maybe think of it this way. In your life, think of of your life like a coin, right? And, And so it's got two sides to it. And the passions in your life, your, your personality, the way God has wired you, the things that he has gifted you with, there are two sides to every one of those. One is where sin takes control and it leads you down destructive paths. The other is where Jesus takes control and he redeems it and uses your passions for his purpose. Parents do this a, a lot with their children. You learn early on that God has wired your kids in certain ways and you see both the positive and negative aspects of their gifts. Angie, my wife, was, was wonderful with this when our kids were little. Um, Angie and I, went, yesterday when we were talking with my mom, we were talking about the stubbornness of our children. And uh, my mom was helping me remember that I was stubborn. And I was helping Angie remember that she was stubborn. And then I helped my mom remember that she was stubborn. And then we talked about how my whole dad's side of the family was stubborn. And Angie's whole dad's side of the family was stubborn. And Angie's mom's side of the family are nice. Uh, you know, and, and so, so our kids, like, they've got, they've got it coming from three of the four sides of the family, all of this stubbornness coming into them. So when they were children, uh, especially little, little tiny, you know, in those two, three years old, where they're first discovering their personality, they're discovering their voice, and they're telling you no all of the time. Um, I took the, the tact more of, like, I'm the king of this castle, and you're going to shut your mouth and do what I say. Like, I'm not taking lip from a three-year-old. I'm not, stop it, don't do that. Angie was always very good uh, of coming along and reminding me, like, hey, we want to redirect them, but we don't want to crush their spirit. And, and if God has given the, them these gifts, we want them to be there. Like, we want to raise strong men. We want to raise a strong woman. And so let's not crush it out of them at a young age. And so yesterday we were having this talk with my mom, and, and my mom reminded me, as she often does, of something my grandma told her about me when I was little. So when I was little, uh, one of the things my mom noticed and my grandma saw me was I had the ability to get other people to do what I want. Um, you know, and, and so spiritually, we could call this a gift of leadership, um, is how I prefer to see it personally, but it, it, it wasn't always kind of seen that way. And so we would go visit my grandma. She lived about three hours away from us and, uh, we'd be there for about 10 minutes before my mom would tell me to go outside. So, uh, I would go outside and I would start making friends with anyone in the neighborhood that was outside. If they were my age, younger, older, didn't matter. And before long, I would have them all doing what I wanted. So if I went out and they were playing baseball, within 10 minutes, we were playing basketball. If they were, doing some, if they were inside, we were going to be outside. It, it just always, I could get them to do it. And sometimes that worked in good ways, and sometimes it worked in bad ways. And sometimes my grandma's neighbors would come after I left and say, we really like Chris. It's fun that he gets our kids to go outside. And other times they would come and say, Chris is 
throwing rocks at the cars and having our kids do it too, right? And, and so it was just all kinds of things. And apparently at one point along the way, my grandma pulled my mom aside and said, Gwen, I, I see in Chris that he can get people to do what he wants. And so um, there's some pressure on you as a mom because what I really think is, and she kind of gave her two sides of the coin, she said he has the potential to grow up and maybe be a, a, like a, a president or he's going to go to prison. And she just let it hang there. And, and then if you're a mom, you know what that's like. If, Thanks, mom. Uh, but what my grandma had saw and what my mom was telling me yesterday that I didn't know was my grandma circled back to her later in some of those conversations and said, Gwen, we've seen in your brother when the leadership goes well, how well it can turn out. But we've seen in some of your cousins how that same strength can go in some really negative directions. And so what she was teaching my mom and what my mom taught me and what Angie taught me again is that when somebody is gifted by God in certain ways, their passions, if they're surrendered to the Lord, can propel them forward on his path. But if they're surrendered to the enemy, can propel them on a path of destruction. And either way, they're going to take people with them. Right? And, and so our job is to understand that Jesus, he's not trying to grind the passion out of us. He made you that way. He has a purpose. He has a plan for it, and he's going to use it. We see this in the, the story of one of his little-known disciples. In Luke chapter 6, uh, we find Luke giving us a list of all of the followers of Jesus. Starting in verse 12, it says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So this morning, we're going to focus on Simon the Zealot. He's one of the, the least known of the disciples. He is not Simon Peter. He's, he's separate, right? Even, I guess, in the time of Jesus, parents weren't creative in their names. So Jesus had 12 disciples. Two of them had the same name. There were two Simons. There were two Judases. And there are some descriptors given to separate them, right? Judas the traitor, Simon the zealot. Uh, Simon gets his name changed to Peter to eliminate some of the confusion. And, and yet, what we find here is years after the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, when Luke sits down to write his story, he could have just said, Simon, whom Jesus called Peter, and the other Simon. But instead, he allows this descriptor to remain Simon the Zealot. Now, Simon the Zealot, he's only mentioned in one other spot in Scripture, which we'll look at later today. And it's another place where Luke just lists all the disciples together. So of the 12, he, I mean, he gets less press than Judas the traitor, right? So it's, it's mildly offensive. It's like Simon is the middle child of the disciples, just kind of overlooked, taken for granted. You know, as a middle child, I can feel his pain. And, and yet, Simon's there and he's listed, and he's not just listed, he's listed as a zealot. And so there's, there's been a lot of work done over the, the centuries to try to figure out what did it mean for Simon to be a zealot and why does Luke feel it's so important to call him by this title, both here in Luke and then later in Acts. And so if, if you'll kind of indulge me for about two or three minutes here, we've got to do a little um, historical work on revolutionary movements in first century Israel. 
And I know there's about 2% of you in the room and online who think, yes, can't wait. Um, and, and you're with me, right? So, so as I have studied through this, I mean, there, literally, it could be a 30-minute talk about all of these leaders and these revolutions and these uprisings and how different enemies uh, attacked and, and, and responded to them. But as Angie often reminds me, no one cares. So uh, I'm, I'm going to try to honor her and my children and their, I mean, it, you, dads, you're passionate about some stuff your kids don't care about. When you start to talk about it, you see their eyes roll back in their head, right? Um, that's me with, with most history stuff. And so Angie always tells me, hey, the shorter the better, uh, just get to the point. So um, now that I've belabored it for two extra minutes, let's go ahead and, and get to the point. First century Israel, the Jewish people are living under Roman occupation which means the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The descendants of those that Moses has led out of Egypt, that Joshua led to take possession of the promised land, they have been told that part of God's promise in their life is that they will live in this place. And so for, for Jewish people, the promised land is not just where they live, but it's a sign and a symbol of God's power, God's promises, and God's provision in their life. So the presence of a foreign enemy who has not just conquered them but is now ruling over them is a daily reminder to them that life is not as it should be. So in first century, the Romans are the current occupiers. They have come in. They've conquered the land. They have established their own uh, government throughout the different areas. They have established a system of collecting taxes. They have placed their soldiers in the land to make sure nothing gets out of control. And they've given the Jews a relative degree of autonomy and independence because they don't want them to revolt. So by the time of Jesus, there are kind of a, a couple different streams in Israel of how people have responded to Roman occupation. So the first would be like Matthew, the tax collector, who we talked about last week. People who become collaborators with Rome, who decide, well, Rome is here and we can't do anything, so we might as well try to benefit from it. The second, kind of the middle stream, which would have had the most people, is people who hated Rome, wanted them to be gone, but were not willing to risk their lives, their property, or their, their economic future to get rid of Rome. And then there was a third stream of people who were zealous, people who were passionate about restoring Israel to their former glory, about getting rid of any oppressor. And these people were called zealots. Now, in the, the decades after Jesus' resurrection, this becomes a more formal, almost political party who engage in acts of violence against their neighbors. The first century historian Josephus tells us that zealots had no regard for their life or liberty and didn't care any, uh, anything at all about what their friend, family or friends would plead with them about, hey, don't get involved, don't do it. Their, their number one driving concern in life was we must get rid of Rome. So after the time of Jesus, the zealots engage of acts of violence against Rome. They engage of acts of violence against uh, other Jews that they think are collaborating with Rome. And so when we're told that Simon is the zealot, it doesn't just mean that he is passionate about getting rid of Rome. It means he eats, sleeps, and breathes overthrowing Rome and Israel. There is nothing he can talk about. There is nothing he can think about. There is no path he wants to walk down. There's no other conversation he wants to have. So with that in mind, what you need to understand is Jesus choosing Simon the Zealot to be his disciple is a very dangerous decision. Because Jesus, as a rising religious figure, as a teacher who is gathering large crowds of people, was already viewed as a threat to the, the religious leaders and the Roman authorities. 
And then when they would have known, in addition to these crowds he's gathering, he also associates with people like Simon. People who constantly talk about getting rid of Rome, who constantly antagonize people who collude with Rome. So the the fact that Jesus doesn't keep Simon at an arm's length, but instead welcomes him into his inner circle should teach us that Jesus loves passionate people. He's not trying to get that out of you. And so, so you might have been told your whole life, you need to calm down. You need to quiet down. You don't care about that. Don't worry about that. Don't take concern on yourself for that. Don't push so hard. Don't work so hard. Don't run in such a, a fast direction after these things. There might be people all around you from teachers in school to bosses that you've had in work to friends or family members who've spent their whole life trying to get you to be a less passionate person. But what I can promise you is there is nothing in your life that you are as passionate about as Simon the Zealot would have been getting rid of Rome. I mean, imagine your most passionate friends. Like You've got friends that you know when you hang out with them, there's going to be one topic of conversation. And it's whatever the thing is that they're most into at that time. Right, so, so maybe it is, it's, they're the crazy sports parent. And you know, if you go to lunch, all they're going to tell you is about how their seven-year-old pitched two scoreless innings. Right? Or, or if you, maybe they're the lawn guy, and you've got the lawn guy in your neighborhood. And you know, if you go talk to him, all he's going to talk to you about is his battle with the dandelions. Right? And how, how one day he's going to win, and he's going to get there. And, and you've, you've got that. You talk to the new mom. When you talk to a new mom, you know she's going to talk about her baby. Right to the point that she doesn't understand it's weird to tell you how many dirty diapers they had yesterday compared to the day before and what color they were. Right, And it's just like, we, we don't need to know that. But you know when they're passionate, that's what they're going to talk about. Every one of the disciples and everyone that was surrounding Jesus knew if they talked to Simon, there was one conversation. When are you going to overthrow Rome? And so when Jesus shows up as a messianic figure, Simon would have been very excited to follow him. But as he follows Jesus, what he begins to learn is Jesus isn't trying to take away his passion, but he is trying to redeem it. He is trying to redirect it. And so he's going to teach Simon over the years that he follows him of, hey, I haven't come to overthrow the tyranny of Rome. I've come to overthrow a much greater evil, the tyranny of sin. I haven't come just to restore the political throne of David, but I've come to invite everyone into the kingdom of God. I haven't come just to restore the preeminence of Israel, but I've come to restore the preeminence of every man, woman, and child all over the world into their eternal role as the sons and the daughters of God. Jesus, as far as we know, never told Simon to calm down, to stop it, or to knock it off. He just redirected him. And in fact, as we read through the Gospels, we often find the disciples asking Jesus questions like, Lord, is this the time? Is this the place? Now are you going to restore the throne of Israel? And it's likely that most of those questions originated with Simon. Because this is what he was zealous for. But God didn't try to stamp out his zeal. He just tried to redirect it. And as Simon followed Jesus, he began to learn about something that was worthy of his passion, something that was worthy of his devotion. It was this new kingdom that Jesus was establishing. The next time we see Simon mentioned in the scriptures is in Acts chapter 1. It takes place 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples are gathered outside of Jerusalem for the ascension of Jesus, even though they don't know it at the time. Acts chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. 
When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So again, Simon the Zealot is mentioned. This time he is number 10 of 11. Most uh, scholars think that Luke records the name of the names of the disciples here in, in some order of their authority in the early church and their influence on it, which means Simon is at the bottom ahead only of the other disciple who shared the name with the traitor. All right, so he's still not really at the top of the list, and yet this title remains. He is still after the resurrection of Jesus, and when Luke sits down to write the story of the early church, forever going to be known as Simon the zealot. Again, reinforcing this idea that Jesus isn't trying to remove your passion. He's trying to redeem it. And on this day, it's Simon's passion for Jesus, for obeying Jesus, and for having all Jesus has called him to do that propels him to go back with the disciples from this hill outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem and to find a place to wait and pray. Now, Jesus has told the disciples, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which the Father has promised. When you receive it, you'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's the end of his instruction. Jesus never told the disciples the Holy Spirit will come on the day of Pentecost. He never told them what it would look like or how they would know what happened. All he told them was go wait. And so they go back and for 40 days they gather together. For 40 days they're obedient and they pray. For 40 days they seek and they wait and they wait and they seek. Now I don't know about you, but I personally have never been involved in a 40-day prayer meeting. Where day after day, all day every day, all we're going to do is pray. But I can tell you, if I ever was, I would really want there to be some passionate people there in the room with me. Because passionate people are disciplined. Passionate people, when the Lord has directed them after something they care about, they're going to chase it. They're not going to turn away from it. And so if you're one of the other disciples, it's going to be helpful to have a zealot in the room with you. Right, whose passions have been transformed. I mean, you can almost see Simon standing at the door in the upper room. And Peter thinks he's going to go out and get lunch. And Simon's letting him know, no, we're going to pray. And we're going to keep praying. Matthew, stop talking. Right, Judas, knock it off. We need to pray. Passionate people are disciplined. Passionate people will persevere for 40 days. You, you've got to feel like Simon is in there saying, guys, let's go. Just keep praying. Keep trusting. Jesus promised, reminding them of who he was and what he'd done and why they could trust him and why they couldn't give up and why they needed to wait. Passionate people are encouraging, right? They not only are passionate about the things that they love, but they encourage others to be passionate as well. And so Simon the Zealot has to be one of the key figures in the upper room. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enables them. And then the other Simon, Peter, he gets up and he tells the crowd what is going on. And Simon the Zealot, he's there somewhere in the background. But what we're reminded of again in his story is Jesus wants to redeem our passions. 
And so if you're a passionate person, it doesn't mean you have to change and become someone you're not. It just means you have to surrender that part of your life to the Lord and let him use it for his purposes and his glory. It means, parents, if you're raising passionate children, the goal is not to get them to grow up to be people who sit quietly on the side and blend in. It's to let their passions be shaped by the Holy Spirit and used for his purposes and his glory. Jesus loves passionate people. Jesus uses passionate people, and the world needs passionate people. See, our passions are something God uses to tell the world about him. And even if you're here this morning, you think, well, that's great, but I'm not extroverted. I don't like talking to people. I like my interests, and I don't want to share them with anyone else at all. Uh, Bad news for you, God's going to make you passionate. And he's going to make you passionate to the point that the passionate bubbles up inside of you and flows out of you into the world around you. Passion for Christ is not restricted to your personality. It's not restricted to your interests. It is something that we all embrace, that we all enjoy, and that we all share with the world around us. This is what Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2. He says, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The Holy Spirit, Paul tells us, takes our zeal, he takes our passion, he uses it, redeems it through Jesus, and then points us in the right direction to follow him, making us zealous for good works. Now, again, there's probably some attention that needs to be given because some of us think, well, if I'm going to be zealous for good works, if I'm going to be passionate about what God has called me to do, then it means I probably need to get passionate about some Christian stuff. Right, zealous for good works. I, I need to be zealous about the Bible. I need to be zealous about worship. I need to be passionate about prayer. I need to be passionate about serving, about giving, about all of these other stereotypical Christian things. And, and that's true, and God uses those. Right? So, so in my life, one of the passions God has given me is I love the scriptures. I love to read them. I love to study them. I love to read the backgrounds of them. I love to know how they interact with each other. I love for God to speak to me. I love to teach from them. I love all of that. And that seems like a pretty logical place for me to be zealous to do good works. And it is. And yet what I've learned as I follow Jesus is it's not just the spiritual passions that God uses to build his kingdom. But there are a lot of other passions you have in your life that are less than spiritual, that don't seem all that eternally significant. There are things you care about that almost no one else in your world cares about. There are things I care about that no one else really cares about. And yet we have these passions. And sometimes in church, the teaching is you've got to give all of that up and only be passionate about reading the Bible, praying, singing, serving, and giving. And that's it. Nothing else. Anything else is a distraction. But I believe what the the Lord is saying to us through the choosing of Simon and through Paul and Titus chapter 2 is if God made you passionate, his only expectation is that you surrender all of your passions to him. You allow him to remove the ones that he doesn't want you to have anymore, but you remain passionate about everything he leaves in your hands. And then you begin to understand that our passions are a platform for Jesus. Because your passions create a space for you to share the good news of Jesus with other people. And so, so if you go back to Simon, Simon wasn't the only one who was zealous to overthrow Rome. It eventually becomes a whole political movement in Israel. Well, who do you think of the disciples was most equipped to talk to the other zealots? It's Simon the zealot. 
right? I mean, he carries his credentials in his name, right? He, I mean, he can walk in the room and be like, I know y'all are crazy. I was crazy too. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Let me show you a greater source of your passion. And so my encouragement to you this morning is there are things in your life that God has made you passionate about that you think aren't spiritual, don't matter, and you need to lay them down. But maybe that's the exact platform God wants to use to bring others into a relationship with him. Now, there's a, a caveat here. If your passions are sinful, that's not the platform Jesus is going to use, right? So if you're like, you know what? I'm really passionate about robbing banks. Pretty good at it. Pulled off a few. Haven't got caught. Making some money. Giving to kingdom builders, right? I mean, maybe, maybe that's what you're thinking. Just, it's, it's good. It's working. It's going. I, I don't think that's the passion that Jesus is going to use as a platform, right? If, if you're really passionate about hooking up with people you're not married to. But no, it's cool. I witnessed all of them. Not the passion Jesus is going to use as a platform. Like we know we have sinful passions. So if you have sinful passions, it's not saying, Lord, use my sin for your glory. It's saying, Lord, remove my sin for your glory. Lord, take this away. I don't want it anymore. And then recognizing anything that Jesus leaves in my hand, these secondary passions he wants to use for his purposes and his glory. So if, if you've been around me at all, or if you've been at Christian Chapel for probably more than three weeks, if you've been to a 101 group, uh, you know that, that I love basketball. My wife loves basketball. My kids love basketball, right? The, the giant kid that was in the video with the giraffe legs, that one's mine. Um, they, they all love it. They play it a lot. Uh, I, I was able to play growing up, and it, it was a huge part of my life. But after I got out of college and, and graduated from seminary, Angie and I came to Christian Chapel, and we were hired as youth pastors. And, and with basketball, I very much felt like the Lord was telling me, in the words of Paul, when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And it was kind of like, hey, that was a game, and that was fun. But all the time, all the energy, all the attention that went into it, it's now time to redirect into more serious, more eternally significant things. And so for a couple years, that's what I did. Our, our oldest, Connor, he was three months old when we moved here. And so it was pretty easy those first couple years. You know, we, we bought him the little Tykes basketball goal, and he would play all day long in the living room. And, and then when he was four, we signed him up for upward basketball, right? Maybe you've done that where everybody gets a wristband, and it's, it's like communist basketball. You can only guard the person of equal, equal talent to you, but you can't steal the ball from anyone, and you can't shoot till he touches it. And so... We did that for a year, and I couldn't take it anymore. And I was like, I, we've got to find a different league. And, and we found out City Leagues and Broken Arrow started in first grade at that time. And so first grade hit, and I was so excited. Of Buddy, it's real basketball time. You can steal the ball from all of them, right? You can find the weakest one and exploit them. Like, it, it, was, it was just this wonderful. And, and even in that, recognizing this is why I had to put this behind. It brings out the worst in me, right? And, and so we signed Connor up, and, and then we got the email that almost every parent gets at some point if you sign your kid up for a rec league of, we are desperate for coaches. Will somebody please coach these teams? We've got teams that might not form, kids that might not get to play. And Angie looked at me and I told her, no, I can't. I'm too busy. We've got these other two babies at home. You're busy. I'm busy. We're, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do really serious things, really significant things. I can't do that. I'll go to his games. I'll take him to practice. He and I'll have fun. We'll bond, but, but I'm not going to coach. So I go to his first practice and and there's a bunch of probably seven or eight first grade boys that are out there and they're just running around like maniacs on the court. The, the coach is a mom 
and she kind of sits all the parents down. She has a three-ring binder that she tells us is her how-to-coach basketball binder. And she lets us know, I've never played basketball. I've never really even watched basketball, but uh, nobody else stepped up, and I wanted our kids to play. And I had already been having a conversation with the dad next to me about all the very spiritual reasons that I could not be a coach and the serious things God had called me to do. So I looked at him like, you should help her, uh, you know, because Jesus is on my side. I don't need to coach. And, and he gave me his reasons. And, and so then she kind of went out and she made an attempt to coach these little boys. Well, first we noticed she couldn't get their attention. They just continued to do whatever they wanted. And then we saw her flipping through her binder and she got about three quarters of the way through and she turned over to me and the dad and said, do either of you know how to run a three-man weave? I don't know if you know anything about basketball or not, but that'd be like showing up in a first grade math class and saying, who wants to learn calculus? Like, that's not where you start, right? If you've ever coached first grade boys, you know the first thing you start with is shut up, everybody, get on the line. These are the out-of-bounds lines. This is offense. This is defense. That's a basketball. This is dribbling. The most basic things in the world. Stop tackling each other. You know, all of these types of things. And, and yet she's saying, hey, three-man weave? I'm like, really? What's next? A 2-2-1 two, two, press? Like, come on. Let's, we can't do this. And, and, and so I, I just looked at the dad. I'm like, I got to help this poor woman. So I went out and told her, like, hey, if you'll do all the, like, coach stuff of organizing practices and ordering jerseys and handling parents. I will show up at every practice. I will run these boys until I think they're going to die. I will coach games. I'll do everything we need to do. And she said, that's great. Let's go. And so, so I jumped in with Connor and his group and, and discovered I loved it and discovered that God wasn't mad at me about this. And discovered, as, as Angie told me, if, well, if God made you love something, then maybe he wants to use it. And began to discover, because I had already learned by this point in Tulsa, that if you're trying to make friends outside of the church, the worst thing you can tell somebody is, I'm a pastor. And I, I don't know if you've ever, like, if there are people you don't like who hang out with you, just tell them you're a pastor. They'll leave you alone. Right? Like, it's, it's the worst thing in the world. I would go to my kid's school, and it's like, hey, how are you? And they'd meet Angie, and she'd be like, I'm a nurse. Oh, really? What's that like? And they'd talk to her, and then they'd come to me. Hey, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, yeah, my grandma goes to church. And they just walk off. Like it is an immediate brick wall that gets thrown up. They either want to talk to you about their theological issues, uh, problems they have where they don't want to talk to you at all. But what I learned was on a basketball court, I just got to be coach. I wasn't pastor anybody. I wasn't associated with anything. And I could build friendships and I could build relationships and I could teach boys and I could get to know their dads and we could get to know their moms. And over the years, then, then we coached Corbin and then we coached Audrey and there were years we were coaching all three together. And there were years I'd rope Angie in to coach with them. And, and what I discovered was this created avenues for me to build relationships, to build friendships and to begin to introduce people in my community to Jesus. And now, 10 years later, I, I've baptized several of those boys at Christian Chapel. I've taken them to kids camp and prayed for them to follow Jesus as they surrender their lives to them. And all of that started with this childish passion that I thought I needed to give up. And my encouragement to you is there are things in your life that God has given you the ability to care about. And he's not coming to say, now give it all up and just stay at home and read your Bible. He's saying, just, just surrender that passion. Just let me redeem it. 
Let me use it. Build relationships through it. And in that, over the course of time, you're going to begin to tell stories of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in your life. And in those communities of like-minded people who are passionate about the same things that you are, God's kingdom is going to advance. Men and women's lives are going to be changed. Teenagers and children are going to be set on a different direction because you embrace the passions that God put inside of you. Right? Simon could have easily said, hey, Luke, Stop calling me the zealot. I don't want to be that anymore. I want to leave that behind. But he he was fine because the zealot was no longer a political thing. It was now all about his passion for Jesus and the direction he was leading him and guiding him. And so in, in your life, again, I don't know what it is, but I know God has gifted you. I know he's made you passionate. And if you'll just surrender those passions to him, he'll use them as a platform to tell his story. The last caveat I would give you along these lines, though, is your passions are a platform for Jesus. Jesus is not a platform for your passions. Jesus isn't your marketing trick to grow your business. Jesus isn't your lucky charm to try to win a game. Jesus isn't the card you play to try to close the deal, get the house, or earn the scholarship. At everything that Jesus gives us, They are lesser passions compared to him. And so with everything we love and everything we care about, we always stand before the Lord with open hands, saying, Lord, take and remove anything you want, but anything you leave, redeem it and use it for your glory. And he does it again and again and again. Will you stand with me so I can pray for you? The band's going to come and lead us in a final song this morning. Jesus, we come to you today and we are reminded, Lord, that you are worthy. You're greater than everything we are passionate about, greater than everything we pursue. So Jesus, we come this morning and we we lay all of our passions before you. We ask that you would work and you would move. Lord, we surrender everything. We give you the freedom, Lord, to remove anything that is not pleasing to you, anything that has moved from a passion in our heart to an idol and an object of worship. And Lord, now we ask anything that you leave in our hands, any interests, any activities, any hobbies, any pursuits, Lord, that you would use these passions for your glory. We surrender them to you. We submit them to the work of your kingdom. And we believe you will use them to achieve your purposes in our life and in our world. Lord, all we want is to let all of our story tell all of your story. So Jesus, will you come and remind us that you love passionate people. You redeem it, you repurpose it, and you redirect us on a path of passion for your kingdom, inviting others to join with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.